It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Pucks and Cups, where I look at the early history of hockey. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, From John to Justin and Canadian History X, which release every single week. When the topic of NHL player strikes comes up, we tend to look at the 1992 strike, the 2005 strike that wiped out the NHL season completely, and the 2012 strike that caused a shortened season. While those strikes had a huge impact on the NHL as we know it today, I'm looking at what many consider to be the first NHL strike, apart from when two Ottawa Senator players refused to play until they got a raise in 1917. First, we need to look at the Hamilton Tigers. Originally known as the Quebec Bulldogs from 1878 to 1920, winning two Stanley Cups, that franchise became dormant and the NHL would sell it to the Abso Pure Ice Company of Hamilton. The club officially moved to the city for the 1920-21 season and was renamed as the Hamilton Tigers. Hamilton received the franchise to prevent the appearance of a rival league, which was looking to Hamilton as a possible market for a team. Things started off well for the team, beginning with a shutout in their very first game, the first NHL team to ever do so, with a win of 5-0 over the Montreal Canadiens. Unfortunately, that was a high point and the team quickly fell down the standings until the NHL ordered the other teams in the league to supply the team with players. That did not help much, and they finished their first season with 6 wins and 18 losses. The Tigers had acquired legend Joe Malone early in the season, and he would be a bright spot with 30 goals in 20 games. The next three seasons were just as bad, with the Tigers finishing last every single year. Things began to turn around in 1923-24, with a new head coach and the addition of several great players that were picked up from the Sudbury Wolves of the Northern Ontario Hockey Association. Those four players were Red Green, Shorty Green, Alex McKinnon, and Charlie Langlios. They would immediately step into the team and immediately help it. Red, Shorty, and Alex would finish in the top five of scoring on the team, and Shorty Green would serve as the team captain on his way to a Hall of Fame career. That year, the team had 9 wins in 24 games, a record for the team at the time. In the 1924-25 season, the Tigers took off with a strong start, going 10-4-1 to start the season. Halfway into this season, the team had more wins than at any point in its previous NHL history. While there was a somewhat of a slump in the second half of the season, the team still finished first overall with 19 wins, 10 losses and 1 tie. Many thought that this would be the year that the team would win the Stanley Cup, the first for the franchise since 1913 when the team was in Quebec. Billy Birch, who finished the season with 27 points in 27 games, also took home the Hart Trophy. T. 
Team owner and general manager Percy Thompson was also unhappy that the team played hard during their last game, a loss on March 9th against Montreal, instead of conserving their energy for the league championship series. Everything changed when the first large player strike occurred in NHL history. During the train ride back to Hamilton after the final game of the season, the players on the Tigers discussed their grievances and Captain Wilfred Shorty Green went to Thompson and demanded for $200 for the six extra games they played that season. They also weren't reimbursed the expenses during training camp held in November. They said that if they did not get the money, they would not play in the playoffs. This demand came because the NHL had increased the number of games players played from 24 to 30 that season, but without an increase of pay to the players. For players who made it to the playoffs, they didn't get anything extra unless the owner dictated it. The league gave postseason profits to team owners and arena operators to cover business costs. Sometimes the owners would give bonuses for winning the Stanley Cup. The management of the Tigers stated that the players were under contract from December 1st to March 30th, no matter the amount of games. Management would not pay the players the extra money, so the issue was pushed upwards to the NHL. Thompson and other team officials said the team didn't have the money and couldn't pay the players in the playoffs even if they wanted to. It should be pointed out, according to the Ottawa Citizen publisher P.D. Ross, that the Tigers made an extra $25,000 in profit that year, more than enough to compensate the players. At first, Tigers management did not believe the threat, but when it became clear that the players were going to strike, NHL president Frank Calder was contacted. Calder warned that if the players sat out, they would be suspended and the entire team would be replaced in the playoffs by the fourth-place Ottawa team. Calder also ordered that the back pay of the players be held back. For Calder, he believed that the owner's finances came before the players, the fans, or even the game of hockey. Giving in to the players would jeopardize the owners and their, quote, large capital investment in rinks and arenas, and this capital must be protected, end quote. Lee McCarr, the local member of the legislature, tried to find a compromise that would see players receive $100. Shorty Green would say of the offer, quote, if you can see fit to pay us half our demand, you surely must realize the justice of our case and go the rest of the way. End quote. All of the players on the team remained united, including Mickey Rorch and Jess Spring, who refused to be exempted from the walkout even though they had settled in Hamilton and had lined up summer jobs. Green would speak to the Hamilton Herald, stating, quote, The players have played the game on the ice all year. They have given their best. It isn't a matter of sportsmanship at all. It is money, and we feel that we have a perfect right to be paid for work done. Professional hockey is a money-making affair. The promoters are in the game for what they can make out of it, and the players wouldn't be in the game if they didn't look at the matters in the same light. If we weren't producing the kind of hockey to draw the crowds, we wouldn't be paid accordingly. Why then would we be asked to play two extra games merely for the sake of sweetening the league's finances? End quote. Calder, a tough man when it came to these matters, was not going to be swayed in the opinion of the players. He believed that the players had planned to show up for the first game of the championship series and then refused to take the ice until they were paid. He would say to the Toronto Daily Star, quote, The Hamilton players tried to pull a very shabby trick on their club in the league. 
But fortunately for us, the plot leaked out and now we are in a position to deal with it. End quote. While this was happening, Toronto and Montreal played their semi-final game, with Montreal winning on March 13th. On March 14th, after speaking with the management of the Tigers, Calder declared that the Canadians would be the NHL champions. On top of that, the Tigers players did not receive the $200 they demanded and were instead fined $200 in the process. Calder would release a statement saying, quote, The greatest patience was exercised with them in an effort to persuade them of the error of their ways, and some of them admitted they had done wrong. Because of an ill-advised compact entered into with the ringleaders, however, they chose to remain out rather than fulfill their contracts. End quote. The Canadians would go on to play the Victoria Cougars of the Pacific Coast Hockey League, losing in the final. This marked the last time that a rival league other than the NHL won the Stanley Cup. Many in the hockey world were sure this was the end of the Tigers in Hamilton. The league demanded that a facility be built in the city to replace the 4,500-seat arena, and the Tiger owners estimated that would cost $200,000, or $3 million today. Other teams came into the mix offering to buy the suspended players for $110,000. The players would issue a statement signed by Shorty Green stating that they appreciated the support of the fans that had, as the statement said, quote, brought forth a concerted and great effort from each and every man to give his best, support sadly lacking from the executive end of the club, end quote. The statement also said that the players would never play again for the present management. This marked the end of the Hamilton Tigers, and the rights to the players were bought by Bill Dwyer. The team was then moved to New York and were known briefly as the New York Hamilton Tigers at training camp before they were renamed as the New York Americans. The rights to the players were sold to the new team for $75,000. Calder also said that if the players paid their fine and wrote him apology letters, their suspensions would be lifted. According to some sources, he did get some apology letters, but he did not feel they were sorry enough, and he made them write another. Another source said the players did not write the letters. Calder would say, quote, most of these young players want to give me an argument. End quote. Calder then ordered the Americans to hold back $300 of each player's pay as a good conduct bond. As for the players, they were never given their money, and the issue over their fine was eventually dropped. Many consider the 1924 25 Hamilton team to be the best NHL team to never win the Stanley Cup. Not only did they finish first that season, but 20% of that roster would go on to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Tommy Gorman, who managed the Ottawa Senators, said of the team that it was, quote, a magnificent hockey machine. The team, which was the exact same one that nearly won the Stanley Cup the year before, finished fifth in New York's first season. This was blamed on the boozy lifestyle of New York and the influence of the criminal underworld who worked for bootlegging owner Dwyer. One bright spot was the fact that the players that went to New York all ended up getting pay raises from their bootlegging boss. With the players from the Tigers, the New York Americans would last until 1942, never winning the Stanley Cup. When the New York Americans folded, it officially began the era of the original six, which lasted until 1967. The last player from the Tigers to play in the NHL was Billy Birch, who retired in 1933. He was elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1974. 
The 1924-25 version of the Hamilton Tigers would be inducted into the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame in 2016. Hamilton has never seen an NHL team since, but there were attempts to bring one in. Cops Coliseum was built in 1985 in an attempt to draw a team, and Jim Belizel attempted to move three different franchises to the city between 2006 and 2009, but this was blocked as it was felt they would draw fans away from the Buffalo Sabres and Toronto Maple Leafs. Nobody was thinking about bankruptcy 13 years ago. To the applicants representing the city of Ottawa. It's taken more than half a century, but the national capital is back in the National Hockey League. This is the biggest thing that has ever happened to the city of Ottawa, other than being named the capital in 1857. December 6, 1990, the day Ottawa won its bid for an NHL franchise. Gabe Macaluso was there, but he wasn't cheering. He was heading up a competing bid for Hamilton, Ontario. Today, Mr. Macaluso is the Managing Director and Chief Executive of Cops Coliseum in Hamilton. Good morning. Good morning, Anna Maria. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you. Take us back to that day in December when Ottawa beat out Hamilton for the NHL franchise. What were you thinking? Well, it was a complete shock to... uh our uh, bid presentation team. Uh, first of all, uh, please note that uh, we were given a uh, bid binder with uh, various criteria. Uh, amongst them, uh, these were mandatory criteria. It said that you had to have a building and uh, with a 20-year lease in place that we had. Uh, they said that we needed a local owner uh, with, I, I stress, local owner, with, stress, uh, with deep pockets, And we had Mr. Ron Joyce, a Canadian billionaire, uh, in place with a magnificent uh, string of uh, Tim Horton donuts, um, similar to Mike Illich and his Caesars uh, Pizza's uh, uh, outlets and a wonderful marketing arm. And they asked us uh, that we needed, or they told us that we needed a minimum of 10,000 season ticket prescribers. We had over 18,000 in hand. Uh, they also asked us, or said that we needed a market uh, that would support a hockey team. We have, within a 50-mile radius of Hamilton, 5 million people, all born with pucks in their mouths. Hmm. Um, they also uh, wanted to um, the uh, corporate uh, support in place. We had 70 corporate companies committed to purchasing 70 corporate boxes. Uh, for a minimum of five years, all of that was in place, and uh, lo and behold, the team was, uh, or the teams were given to two entities, uh, Ottawa and Tampa, neither of which had a building in place, neither of which had money, neither of which had owners, and neither of which had uh, any kind of uh, market for it, and uh, which was uh, absolutely uh, disgusting at that time. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at the Hamilton Tigers and the players' strike of 1925. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurie-Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, K. 
Catherine Roa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from the Toronto Star, Wikipedia, TVO.org, and the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.